There is no doubt that when the commissioners first met, they all knew what was expected of them. They were to go through the motions of an inquiry and quickly release their report. There was no element of suspense as to where their inquiry might lead and what their final report would conclude. When looking at records from the commission executive sessions, we see a pattern on display, a pre-structured task, one aimed at supporting the FBI's conclusions that Oswald was the assassin and he acted alone, that there was no conspiracy. The report is hundreds of pages and contains all kinds of information. But after a multitude of researchers have carefully dissected it piece by piece, the report becomes most notable, not by what it says, but by what it omits. It's time to dive into the Warren Omission Report. You're listening to Conspiracy, Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? You can find a PDF copy of the Warren Commission Report, officially titled, Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy at auroraborsinc.com. It's filed under Reports. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K.com. The original audio file for Episode 10, The Warren Commission, was corrupted and was fixed the next day. If you listened to the episode when it first released and had issues with the audio, please go back and listen to it again. Also, Conspiracy was one of the shows affected by the iTunes directory transitioning databases. The show wasn't searchable or available for a few days while iTunes fixed the issue. Conspiracy is back up and there should not be any more issues. Feel free to contact me at Octavian at auroraborisinc.com if you're still having issues or have any questions regarding the show. At the Commission's first executive session on December 5, 1963, Chief Justice Earl Warren suggested the Commission avoid public hearings and resist calling any live witnesses. Warren also had no desire to ask for subpoena power. He was just comfortable relying on the FBI, the CIA, Secret Service, and any other government agencies to carry out all of the investigative functions. Surprisingly, Senator Richard Russell who wasn't an ally of Warren, favored all of his proposed procedural rules. General Counsel J. Lee Rankin contributed to the Commission's fondness for containment and secrecy by assuming without legal authority the right to classify all Commission documents. Rankin saw to it that all the Commission's executive sessions were classified top secret, despite him having no known authority to do so. This would allow the commission to accept investigative results from the three-letter agencies without any scrutiny, despite the records having historical value and no indication that the records could aid a foreign government or threaten national security, which was a requirement for top-secret status. Committee member John McCloy objected to simply evaluating the evidence fed to it by government agencies. McCloy was the only commissioner to at least entertain the possibility that Kennedy's assassination might have been the result of a domestic conspiracy. McCloy admonished that history would be an unforgiving judge if the commission failed to show the world that America is not a banana republic, where a government can be changed by conspiracy. 
He urged that Warren reverse his position and support the right of the commission to subpoena documents and witnesses when needed. His argument would end up persuading Russell to backtrack and come out in support of subpoena power. As the ranking member of the two-member Senate Oversight Committee for the CIA, Russell knew more about the agency's secrets than anyone else on the Hill. When discussing the information that could be gathered by other agency investigations, Alan Dulles suggested that the CIA might be able to fill in some of the questions regarding Oswald's activities. Russell would sharply comment that the former spymaster had more faith in them than I have. I think they'll doctor anything they hand us. Russell was surely aware that Dulles' first loyalties were to the CIA and its secrets. Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach had made a special point of being present at the Commission's first executive session. Even before he had read the FBI's report, he was present to assure the members that the document would contain only the facts, but have no conclusions in it. Four days later, he would send the FBI report, Commission Document 1, to Chief Justice Warren. In his transmittal letter, Katzenbach described the report as virtually definitive, establishing beyond a reasonable doubt that Oswald had been the assassin and everything pointed to Oswald acting alone. This document would become the blueprint in which the commission used to build its investigation and conclusions, and the FBI would take great measures to ensure the commission stayed on this course. This became evident when papers started reporting on the document, an obvious sign that information was being leaked by the FBI. The FBI would deny any involvement in the leaks, but during the December 12th executive session, it was apparent that any campaign to exonerate the FBI for the leaking had made no headway. Twice during the session, Warren mentioned that he had not found anything in the report that had not been leaked to the press. In the discussion that followed, no one rushed to the defense of the Bureau. Russell found himself once again in total agreement with Warren. While the FBI's preemptive leaking was inconvenient, it was the investigative report itself that confused and frustrated the commission. The greatest source of the commission's confusion came from the report's loopholes surrounding Kennedy's wounds. The FBI had never asked for a copy of the official autopsy report when preparing their document, relying solely on the report from the two FBI agents, James Siebert and Francis O'Neill who had been present at the Bethesda Naval Hospital morgue when the autopsy was performed. The two agents' report described JFK's fatal head wound, but failed to mention the wound in his throat. The official autopsy report placed the back wound at the base of Kennedy's neck, high enough to allow the bullet to exit Kennedy's throat below the Adam's apple. I'm not surprised at the commission's confusion. It was as if they had been handed autopsy reports on two different homicide victims. Congressman Hale Boggs would also express his surprise that the FBI report made no mention of Governor Connolly's wounds. Hoping to get some clarification, McCloy turned to the Secret Service report on the assassination, thinking it would fill in the gaps of the very unsatisfactory and poorly written FBI document. As you may guess, the Secret Service report didn't answer McCloy's or the Commission's questions about JFK's wounds. A month later, McCloy would state that his mind was still muddy as to what really happened. He would suggest that the commission turn to Dr. Winfred Overholzer to reconcile the differences between the FBI report and the official autopsy report. 
This was a strange suggestion because Dr. Overholzer was a psychiatrist, not a forensic pathologist. He was the former head of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a psychiatric institution in Washington, D.C. The commission retained him on a part-time basis largely to take advantage of his psychiatric skills in trying to assess Oswald's motivations for shooting the president. If the commission found it important to retain an expert psychiatrist, once they needed clarification on the autopsy, why wouldn't they find it prudent to retain an expert forensic pathologist? If the commission was seriously looking for an expert opinion to untangle the contradictory reports on Kennedy's wounds, experienced medical forensic pathologists were just a phone call away. And at some point, the commission should have interviewed Agent Sieber and O'Neill about their observations that had gone into the FBI report on the Kennedy autopsy. Of course, the commission never called them as witnesses, nor did they have the staff depose them. Because the FBI report was such a train wreck, the commission supported a resolution introduced by Warren to request all raw materials and reports from the agencies reporting to the commission. Commission Counsel Rankin conceded that the report has many holes in it and went so far as to suggest that the commission consider hiring its own independent investigative staff. Deputy Attorney General Katzenbach represented the FBI's report against Oswald as airtight, but the commission could see it was anything but. Pulling a move straight out of the CIA handbook, Doles passed on the commission's intent to hire its own investigative staff to James Angleton, the CIA's counterintelligence chief. Doles used Angleton and CIA channels to get his info onto Hoover's desk. When Hoover learned of this, a political battle took place behind the scenes, with the commission ultimately not moving forward with their plan. Other skeletons in the Bureau's closet would start to appear, including their desperate attempt to keep hidden the fact that in 1959, the FBI had recruited Jack Ruby as a provisional criminal informant. Conveniently, there's also nothing in the commission report about Ruby's FBI connections. Rankin was mindful that the commission was tasked with making a record for history and would be judged accordingly, and as such, was careful not to antagonize the FBI director. However, Rankin and his staff soon found themselves sailing against the wind. Quickly, the relations between the commission and the Hoover Bureau became adversarial, beginning their downward slide in March 1964. In order to fill in some of the glaring gaps in the FBI report, Rankin submitted to Hoover a five-page document containing 30 specific questions with the request that the FBI provide a reasoned response in reasonable detail, including such substantiating materials as seem appropriate. The 30 questions could be boiled down to three basic categories. What did the FBI know about Oswald? When did it have this information? And last, what had the FBI done with the information in its Oswald file? The fact that Oswald had made contact with the Soviet embassy and the Cuban consulate in Mexico City was grounds enough for the FBI to have advised the Secret Service to place him on its alert list. So the big question is, why didn't they? The Hoover Bureau wisely understood that any exposure of these acts of suppression and corruption of the evidence could result in irreparable damage to its image and pride in the minds of the public. More on this matter will be discussed in a future episode. With the FBI report, the commission now had to confront the evidence that was before them. And by confront, what I'm really saying is that the commission had to find ways to twist, mold, or completely ignore the evidence that was in conflict with the predetermined Oswald narrative. 
The commission's first blunder would be placing Oswald at the sixth floor window at the time of the assassination. In a previous episode, I discussed the commission's star witness, Howard Brennan. He was important because there was no other witnesses willing to swear that they had seen Oswald with the rifle at that sixth floor southeast corner window at the time of the shooting. In a Life magazine article, Congressman Gerald Ford focused on Brennan by stating he was the commission's most important witness. In the article, Ford unequivocally stated that Brennan was the only known person who actually saw Lee Harvey Oswald fire his rifle at President Kennedy. Despite the weight the commission gave to this testimony, Rankin was nervously aware that almost all of Brennan's evidence was flimsy, if not impossible. Two weeks after the FBI's report was made public, Rankin wrote Hoover twice, on December 2nd and again on the 18th, requesting that the FBI determine a complete chain of information from Brennan to the police dispatcher to show that Brennan's description of the shooter was the source of the suspect alert that went out over the police radio. Hoover's response provided little clarity. All Hoover could confirm was that according to the Dallas police, the information came from an unidentified citizen. The FBI had never bothered to track down any specific information that could confirm the precise origin of the assassin's description or descriptions of where the shots had originated. Rankin was well aware that this kind of information was essential to the investigation and reconstruction of the crime scene. It was also essential to combat any suspicion that the assassination was the result of a conspiracy and to shut down any rumors that the conspirators were the source of the description matching Oswald. Rankin's effort produced little, and the FBI's stance was that he would have to be satisfied with Brennan's contradicting sworn statement. No matter how much the Warren Report molded the facts, it could not establish Brennan's credibility as a witness. If you read Howard Brennan's statement, it's quite specific and clear, but upon closer examination, it's easy to break apart. He reported that he had seen the shooter, sitting up and looking down, apparently waiting for the same thing I was, to see the president. Brennan described the man as white in his early 30s, nice-looking, slender, and would weigh about 165 to 175 pounds. After the last shot, Brennan stated he let the gun to his side and stepped down out of sight. And here's the problem with this testimony. Brennan claims the shooter stepped down out of sight. This would be impossible since FBI photos showed that the windowsill was only a foot above the floor. Brennan went on to say that he could see this man from the belt up. Of course, the commission would come to Brennan's rescue, explaining that Oswald most probably was sitting or kneeling while aiming at the president. But if true, and the gunman was sitting or kneeling, then how do we count for Brennan's description of his weight and the clothes he was wearing? As you can see, this is a case where Brennan's specificity concerning the shooter's description actually hurts his testimony and gets slapped down when faced with the facts. Because the commission stressed that Brennan's description most probably led to the radio alert of the suspect, it's odd that the report failed to explain how the star witness had arrived at these physical characteristics, especially if Oswald was sitting. The truth is that the commission had no credible witness to place Oswald at that sixth floor corner window. This problem leads right into another critical area of the case against Oswald. The commission nor any of the agency investigations were ever able to prove that Oswald had brought the alleged weapon into the book depository building the day of the assassination. 
The commission's contention was that Oswald had brought the rifle into the building that morning, broken down and disguised as a curtain rod, hidden in brown wrapping paper. This narrative comes from Wesley Fraser, who had driven Oswald to work that day. Fraser would state that Oswald told him the package was curtain rods. But this is contradicted by the only person who had seen Oswald enter the building that morning, Jack Doherty. Doherty had been working at the book depository for 11 years as a shipping clerk. Employees began their workday at 8 a.m., but Doherty's regular routine was to be on the job an hour early to take care of some extra chores. On the morning of November 22nd, he had finished those extra chores and was sitting on the wrapping table when Oswald entered the back door of the building at about 8 o'clock to start his workday. Commission Assistant Counsel Joseph Ball questioned Doherty about the morning, and this is how it went. Ball, did he come in with anybody? Doherty, no. He was alone? Yes, he was alone. Do you recall him having anything in his hand? Well, I didn't see anything if he did. Did you pay enough attention to him, you think, that you would remember whether he did or didn't? Well, I believe I can. Yes, sir. I'll put it this way. I didn't see anything in his hands at all. In other words, you would say positively he had nothing in his hands. I would say that, yes, sir. Although he was an experienced lawyer, Ball made a rookie mistake by asking one question too many. He got Doherty to say under oath and on record that he was positive. Put another way, and I've said this before, when trying to control the narrative and wanting to hide conflicting or hurtful testimony that compromise your case, you don't ask questions you know the answer to. As we've seen previously, the commission's report ignored Doherty's testimony and concluded that Oswald had carried the disassembled rifle into the book depository that morning. Although the government featured Brennan and ignored Doherty, there are other key witness testimonies relating to Oswald's movements that were fraudulently omitted, altered, or purposely suppressed. The commission took targeted steps to support their reconstruction of Oswald's movements after the shooting that fit their pre-designed narrative. I discussed this in a previous episode, but both the FBI and the commission ignored the time it would have taken Oswald to hide the rifle and run down the depository stairs without anyone seeing him. You'll remember that Seymour Weitzman and Eugene Boone, two Dallas County deputies, discovered the rifle. When Joseph Ball deposed Weitzman, the deputy exposed the holes in the commission's reenactment of Oswald's movements. Weitzman stated that the rifle was so well hidden, I would venture to say eight or nine of us stumbled over the gun a couple of times before we thoroughly searched the building. Boone's testimony went further in his description of the rifle's location. He stated, They caught a glance of the rifle, telling Ball it was stuffed down between two rows of boxes with another pulled over the top of it. Clearly these testimonies illustrate that precious, time-consuming seconds had gone into hiding the rifle. It wasn't absently discarded behind a wall of boxes by a fleeing Oswald, who would have been desperate to place as much distance as possible between himself and the sixth floor window. It also isn't too hard to speculate that the rifle may have been planted before the attempt was made on Kennedy's life. A close study of the commission's report offers no evidence that could categorically rule out this possibility. You should also do a thought experiment. What would you do right after assassinating the president? 
The commission might have ignored the hiding of the rifle and its reconstruction of Oswald's movements, but there were a string of witnesses they couldn't easily shrug off. The first was Victoria Adams. She was a depository employee who watched the presidential motorcade from an open window on the fourth floor. Adams testified before the commission that within 30 seconds to a minute after witnessing the shooting, she ran down the back stairs from the fourth floor down to the first floor. She stated that she did not meet a fleeing Oswald or hear anyone running down the stairs. She maintained that if Oswald was fleeing down the stairs, she would have seen or heard him. If the commission had objectively reviewed her testimony, it would indicate that Oswald may not have been on the sixth floor at the time JFK was shot. While not conclusive, it raises enough doubt for the commission to look further into the matter. The commission report would just conclude that Adams was mistaken about the time she came down the back stairs. The report cited the April commission testimony of Billy Lovelady and William Shelley, who stated that immediately after the shooting, they left the front steps of the depository building and ran toward the railroad yards to watch the police search the cars. They claimed they did not return to the depository until minutes later. According to the report, when Adams encountered Lovelady and Shelley on the first floor, they had already been to the railroad yards and had returned to the depository. Therefore, minutes had elapsed, explaining why Adams did not see Oswald when she came down the back stairs. Okay, fair enough. Taking this into account at face value, that would certainly explain how Adams had not encountered Oswald upon the stairs. But like most things within the commission report, it's what was omitted that stands out. What the report failed to point out was that Lovelady and Shelley's April testimony was contradicted by their own sworn affidavits given to the Dallas police the day of the assassination. Lovelady's affidavit states that after the shooting stopped, we went back into the building and I took some police officers up to search the building. This was also consistent with what he told the FBI the day of the assassination. According to the FBI's 302 interview form, Lovelady stated that after hearing shots, he and Shelley started running toward the president's car, but it sped away west on Elm Street. He and Shelley then returned to the Texas School Book Depository building. Shelley would report to the police that after the shooting, I went back into the building and went inside and called my wife and told her what happened. I was on the first floor and I stayed at the elevator. Their initial accounts mentioned nothing about railroad yards. The police affidavits and Lovelady's FBI interview were given when the events of the day were fresh. It's safe to assume that their testimony given the day of the assassination is more accurate and likely. When you consider the men's original statements and compare them to Victoria Adams' testimony, everything is consistent, and it supports the collective testimony. The reasonable conclusion here is that because Lovelady and Shelley's original testimony doesn't fit the intended narrative, the commission had to ignore them. If we are to believe the commission report, we would have to discount any suspicion that both men forgot to mention the railroad yards, only to independently and conveniently remember them in April. If we do find the April testimony suspicious, then we have reason to suspect that the FBI or the commission persuaded them to alter their testimony, allowing the commission to rescue the official and predetermined version of the Kennedy assassination. Now, do you remember Carolyn Arnold? She worked at the book depository as a secretary. She was the witness who was certain they had seen Oswald on the first floor at 12.25 p.m. 
Arnold told FBI agent Richard Harrison that as she was leaving the building to watch the presidential motorcade, she spotted Oswald between the first floor and the double doors leading to the warehouse on the first floor. When Harrison wrote up her statement, he changed the time on the 302 form from 1225 to a few minutes before 1215 p.m. The FBI altered her statement to provide the necessary time frame for Oswald to get into position at the sniper's nest on the sixth floor. If you look for Arnold's testimony in the commission report, you won't find it. The commission never called Arnold as a witness. Funny how that works. Any witnesses with testimony contradicting the official narrative were never called before the commission. Fifteen years later, an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News, Earl Goltz, sought out Carolyn Arnold to ask her about what she had told the FBI in 1963. According to Arnold's story, she was shocked when he pointed out to her that the FBI had not mentioned her sighting of Oswald at 1225, five minutes before the president was shot. Arnold's account is incredibly important because Oswald's story was that he had been on the first floor watching the presidential motorcade when the shooting happened. He gave the same account to the Dallas police, the Secret Service, and the FBI. If the commission and the FBI's intent had been to uncover the truth of Dallas, the accounts of these witnesses would not have been knowingly misrepresented, altered, or swept under the rug. The commission's failures are more striking now that we know they never, at any time, had as much as a single investigator of its own. The commissioners, Rankin, and the staff lawyers completely relied upon the FBI to collect the evidence. And we know that the FBI's record for collecting evidence in this case was sloppy and lazy. The Hoover Bureau, having settled on a politically safe solution to the Kennedy assassination, did not want to deal with uncontrollable and contrary evidence that broke ranks with the predetermined official solution. We have previously gone over much of the FBI's mishandled investigation, but now let's look at how the commission sorted through it all. In March 1964, commission lawyer Melvin Eisenberg made a strange request to the FBI lab concerning the ballistics report for the murder of Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett. According to the official account, Oswald shot Officer Tippett less than an hour after leaving the book depository building. The FBI retrieved several cartridge cases from the Tippett crime scene as well as one bullet removed from Tippett, who was dead when he arrived at Methodist Hospital in Dallas. The FBI lab was satisfied that the cartridge cases matched up with Oswald's revolver. However, the recovered bullet was severely damaged and there was not enough sufficient marks to determine whether it came from Oswald's handgun. The FBI in the Capitol had this ballistics report the day after the assassination. But it wasn't until about four months later that Eisenberg was able to point out that the FBI might find it advantageous to obtain the three other bullets recovered from Tippett's body during the autopsy. The existence of the three bullets referenced by Eisenberg could not have come as a breaking news to the FBI. The FBI's report to the commission noted on page 2 that Tippett was shot three times. One of the bullets hit his belt and did not penetrate his body, but was recovered at the crime scene and accounts for the slug collected and examined by the FBI lab. I guess the Dallas FBI office just never bothered to collect them for evidence or even test them. The FBI's indifference toward testing the other bullets for a ballistic match goes to show the Bureau's single-minded determination to insist that Oswald was the lone assailant. And the FBI never asked for a copy of Tippett's autopsy report until more than three months after it was released to the Secret Service on December 10, 1963. Notably, 
December 10th was the day after the FBI report, including a section on Oswald's alleged murder of Tippett, was released to the Warren Commission. The ever-so-humble FBI lab and the Dallas field office manufactured a cover story to feed the commission, blaming the Dallas Police Department for dragging its feet on the Bureau's request for the three bullets. The truth was that the Dallas FBI office didn't contact the Dallas police until two days after Eisenberg made his request. The lies about the Tippett bullets didn't work with Rankin and his staff. There were no commission memos chastising the Bureau for its apparent sloppy and inadequate work ethic, but the FBI was politely placed on notice when the commission decided it was going to have an independent examiner go over some of the evidence. During the time of the Hoover Bureau, the FBI lab had never been subjected to any external scrutiny. Because of its public image, the lab enjoyed the unquestioned reputation as the best forensic laboratory in the world. Once Hoover discovered the commission's plans, I'm sure his anger was palpable. He was quoted as saying, it is getting more and more intolerable to deal with the Warren Commission. The FBI would take more hits when in April 1964, Rankin made a request for the FBI lab results on Governor Connolly's clothes. Analysis of the gunshot holes in Connolly's clothes were important to the commission staffers in reconstructing the shooting of President Kennedy and the injured governor. An examination of Connolly's clothing took on added importance several months after Rankin's April request when the commission was piecing together the single bullet theory that the governor had been struck by the same non-fatal bullet that allegedly exited Kennedy's throat. The construction of the dubbed single bullet theory was essential to the commission's report's contention that all three shots came from the rear of the motorcade and were fired by a lone gunman. Once again, another example of the commission molding the evidence to fit their intended narrative. Hoover's written response to Rankin's request about Connolly's clothes was both ridiculous and inaccurate. The key portion of Hoover's response to Rankin read, nothing was found to indicate which holes were entrances and which were exits. The coat, shirt, and trousers were cleaned prior to their receipt in the laboratory, which might account for the fact that no foreign deposits of metal or other substances were found on the clothing surrounding the holes. Mentioned in the lab's report, but not by Hoover, was the conclusion, it was not possible from an examination of clothing to determine whether or not all the holes were made by the same projectile or projectile fragments. So essentially the dry cleaning of Connolly's clothes destroyed the clothes' value as physical evidence. It's amazing how the FBI once again failed in their responsibility to collect vital physical evidence. It wasn't a mystery as to the whereabouts of Connolly's shirt and coat. They were held at Parkland Memorial Hospital, and when neither the FBI nor the Secret Service showed up to claim them, they were turned over to Texas Congressman Henry Gonzalez. The congressman kept them in his closet at the Capitol. He eventually returned them to Mrs. Connolly, who later reported that she notified the FBI and the Secret Service that she had received the bagged and bloody clothes. But, quote, nobody seemed interested. Mrs. Connolly would wait two months, but no one came for the clothes, so she sent them to the dry cleaners. It's confusing as to why the governor's clothing wasn't picked up by the FBI, because a week after the assassination, James Rowley, chief of Secret Service, passed on a request from Connolly's office in Texas to the FBI asking about their location 
and to the personal effects that were in his suit coat pockets. Gordon Shanklin, the agent in charge of the Dallas field office, notified FBI headquarters that he had checked around but come up empty. Obviously, this wasn't the best investigative work. It's not hard to reason. A great place to start would be the hospital or even to eventually contact Mrs. Connolly herself. The FBI lab would receive the dry cleaned clothes on April 1st, and it would take another three weeks before the lab produced its findings to the commission. I can't help but conclude that because the FBI avoided this evidence for four months, it had to be intentional. Again and again, the FBI's behavior shows that they were not interested in identifying witnesses or uncovering evidence that might jeopardize its prefabricated case against Oswald. The clothes would become important for multiple reasons. One, for the lack of information gathered because they were dry cleaned, and the other, because the lack of any useful evidentiary information actually helped the commission maintain its magic bullet theory. But truthfully, even without the clothes, there's enough information to toss out that laughable theory. Two of the Parkland Memorial Hospital doctors who worked on Connolly had experience with gunshot wounds. They both suspected that the bullet in Connolly had fragmented, a possibility the FBI lab could not reject. The commission would question Dr. Charles Gregory, who actually treated Connolly's wrist injuries. He would express that someone ought to search the governor's belongings and other areas where he had been to uncover the fragments. Connolly's chest surgeon, Dr. Robert Shaw, was convinced long after the commission had reported its findings that the bullet that struck Connolly had fragmented and that two of the largest fragments that were found on the limousine's floor were from the Connolly bullet. The professional opinions of these experienced surgeons was rendered moot by the failure of the FBI to collect Connolly's clothes on the day of the assassination. This would end up being convenient for the commission because if doctors Gregory and Shaw were right about the fragmenting of the Connolly bullet, then the commission's single bullet theory would have passed from the realm of highly improbable to the impossible. According to the commission report, CE-399 hit Kennedy in the back of the neck, then passed through the neck without striking any hard object and emerged at the front of his throat. It then entered Connolly in the back of the right armpit and slid down his fifth rib, demolishing four inches of the rib before it exited the chest below the right nipple. The bullet then allegedly struck and shattered the radius of Connolly's right wrist, one of the hardest bones in the body, and then exited at the base of his palm and entered his left thigh just above the knee. CE-399 then traveled about three inches beneath the surface of the thigh, hit the femur, and deposited a lead fragment on the bone. Sometime later, with a spasm of reverse kinetic energy, it spontaneously exited the hole in Connolly's thigh and neatly tucked itself under the mattress of a stretcher that was parked in a hallway of the Parkland Memorial Hospital that the reports assert was linked to the wounded governor. If this sounds crazy, it's because it is. And this is why the single bullet theory is ridiculous. CE-399 would be described by the commission as pristine despite the damage it had produced and losing less than three grains in weight. To give you an idea of how much three grains weighs, the weight of a postage stamp is one grain. 
This is the bullet the commission wants us to believe passed through Kennedy, hitting the governor and producing all of his injuries. It's also the bullet in which the commission relies upon to support their case for a lone shooter. And that is why Connolly's clothes were important. The cleaning of Connolly's clothing prevented a full forensic examination of the physical evidence. Once the clothes were dry cleaned, it was impossible to conduct a fiber analysis to determine beyond a scientific doubt whether the governor had been hit by a single bullet and whether that bullet had entered or exited his back. The coat was not only cleaned, but it was also pressed. This destroyed the orientation or position of the coat fibers that were around the bullet hole. Additionally, when a bullet strikes material, it leaves a deposit of metal of residue that's called a bullet wipe. A collection of the residue would have allowed for a spectrographic analysis, which would have allowed a comparison between the Kennedy's coat and Connolly's coat. This would have helped in determining whether the holes in Connolly's coat were made by a bullet that came from the same batch as the fragments that were found in the presidential limousine and from the fatal bullet that disintegrated as it passed through Kennedy's skull. If the concentration of the trace elements in the residue from both Connolly's clothes and the head fragments proved to be the same, or nearly the same in parts per million, then the commission's case for a single shooter could have stood virtually unchallenged. The cleaning of Connolly's clothes ruled out the possibility of any comparative testing. So this botched ballistic evidence didn't just stop there. Another commission report omission was any reference to the FBI lab conducting a cotton swab test on the alleged assassination rifle. The most basic ballistic testing is to run a cotton swab down the barrel of a weapon to determine whether it had been recently discharged. If the FBI did go ahead with the swab test on Oswald's alleged weapon, then the results were likely inconclusive, or even negative, and therefore they were suppressed. You can surely bet that if it had been positive, it would have been highlighted and talked about over and over in the commission report. Robert A. Frazier, the FBI's leading firearms expert, never even mentions a swab test. This is surprising since he told the commission that in his years with the FBI, he had undertaken about 50,000 to 100,000 firearms comparisons. The FBI are supposed to be experts. Surely, a basic swab test should have been done. Even more remarkable was that none of the commissioners ever asked Frazier about the results of such a test. McCloy, who owned guns and was familiar with firearms, briefly touched on the subject when he asked Frazier whether there was metal filings in the barrel. Frazier would respond, I did not examine it for that. And that was the end of it. It was never brought up again. So from what we can gather, the commission had no more legitimate success with the ballistics evidence than it did in placing Oswald on the sixth floor of the depository at the time of the assassination. But this wouldn't stop the commission from relying on the meaningless and misleading testimony of FBI firearms experts to build its case against Oswald. As we have discussed previously, the evidence against Oswald in the Tippett killing was also flimsy at best. And at the beginning of July 1964, Norman Redlick, Rankin's special assistant, sent off a memo to Alan Dulles. In summary, Redlick was notifying Dulles that at this point in the investigation, it had not been established beyond a doubt that Oswald had killed Tippett because it was not clear whether he had actually fired his revolver. Adding to the problem was that according to Redlick, 
whether Oswald had even fired a rifle that day, couldn't be established. There were indications that Oswald's 38 Smith & Wesson revolver was defective. This surfaced in the commission's report account of Oswald's arrest in the Texas theater. The report stated that while Oswald was scuffling with one of the arresting officers, a click was heard, which the report identified as the sound of Oswald's handgun misfiring. You'll also remember that when the FBI crime lab examined the four empty 38 shells that were retrieved from the Tippett crime scene, none of those cartridges bore firing pin indentations. The FBI had no choice but to conclude that the firing pin would not strike one or more of the cartridges with sufficient force to fire them. The only conclusion here would be that those cartridges were staged. They were put there not the actual ones used in the slaying. Because the FBI was facing the likelihood that Oswald's pistol was defective and could not have been used in the Tippett shooting, the FBI would end up stating no conclusion could be reached as to whether or not they were fired from Oswald's revolver. So to get around this conclusion, Hoover would report that the FBI laboratory's spectrographic unit had found that the lead alloy in the Tippett bullets were qualitatively similar in comparison to the lead alloy in the six live ammo recovered from Oswald's revolver. To say they were qualitatively similar has absolutely no meaning in comparing the bullets. This is because to say they were qualitatively similar is the same as saying the live ammo and the recovered bullets were both made of metal. That is obvious. This makes Hoover's statement and the results completely disingenuous. A quantitative analysis is needed to find the exact breakdown and composition of the metal. This would allow a complete comparison and offer results on whether the two samples of metal came from the same batch source. And here's the kicker. Quantitative tests were conducted, so it was essential for the commission to question John Gallagher, the one man with first-hand personal knowledge about the quantitative readout, on CE399, the lead scrapings from the limousine windshield, and the fragments from Kennedy's and Connolly's bodies. In addition to Kennedy's autopsy, this was the best forensic evidence in the case. However, it was never presented. Gallagher was the last witness to testify. He was questioned by Commission Assistant Counsel Norman Redlick on September 15, 1964. The timing is alarming because the report was already in the proof stages and it was one week before the commission's findings were sent to the U.S. government printing office. Not a single commission member was in attendance for that short deposition. It was simply a one-on-one, -on -one, Redlick and Gallagher. And Redlick avoided asking a single question about the spectrographic results and the analysis of CE399 and the fragments. He purposely avoided interrogating Gallagher on the results of his quantitative examination, the only results that mattered. The FBI had these test results as part of its permanent record. However, the FBI never volunteered them to the commission, and the commission never asked for them. With the report in its final stages and coming to a conclusion, Alan Dulles would suggest that a detailed biography of Lee Harvey Oswald be included in the main report rather than tucked away in the appendix. Hoping to add weight to the commission's conclusions, McCloy suggested calling a witness from the State Department to testify that those in D.C. were satisfied that there had been no conspiracy. This would prompt the Chief Justice to drag Robert Kennedy's name into the discussion. 
Warren asserted that if Bobby were to testify as a brother and not as attorney general, it would have tremendous force. Rankin also loved this idea. The general counsel thought it would work wonders in quashing all the conspiracy talk. If Bobby Kennedy would agree to testify that he was satisfied that Oswald was the lone assassin. Rankin would offer, it's hardly believable that the brother of the president would stand by if there was some conspiracy in the United States to dispose of his brother. The commission knew that Bobby Kennedy had no knowledge about the assassination. He had disassociated himself from the investigation, relying largely on acting Attorney General Katzenbach, who was a close political ally and family friend, to oversee the proceedings. And so, if he were to testify, it would be a testimony without any honest meaning. But the American people would assume that as Attorney General, he knew all the details of the case, and that he would have seen to it that the truth was indeed the Commission's only mission. The Commission was willing to deceive the nation by trading on Robert Kennedy's name, and that's disgusting. Thankfully, as far as we know, and public records show, none of these suggestions went any further than the talking stage. But if we stop and think about this meeting, the fact that the Commission contemplated going to these links is the best self-indictment that it did not have much confidence in the case it was building against Oswald. So, if we go under the assumption it wasn't Oswald, then who was it? Next time on Conspiracy. We've reached the junction in this case where we're going to start looking at people and organizations. Who had the motive, who had the means, who had the will. What will you believe?